Thank you very much for that expression of fellowship and love. And I would like you to turn to a few passages in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John and chapter 21. The last chapter of John's Gospel. From verse 15, John chapter 21 from verse 15. So when they had broken their fast, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Tend my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And then if you will turn to the twelfth chapter of the first Corinthian letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12 we will read from verse 29 are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers <clears throat> are all workers of miracles have all gifts of healing do all speak with tongues do all interpret but desire earnestly the greater gifts, and moreover, a most excellent way show I unto you. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not, love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil, rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. 
Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, <clears throat> I spake as a child, I felt as a child, I thought as a child. Now that I am become a man, I have put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as also I was fully known. But now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Follow after love. And then in the book of Revelation, <clears throat> and chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 from verse 1. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, <clears throat> he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know thy works, and thy toil, and patience, and that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. And thou hast patience, and didst bear for my name's sake, and hast not grown weary. But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Remember therefore whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to thee, and will move thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. <coughs> Shall we bow together in a word of prayer? <coughs> Heavenly Father, <coughs> we do need you. We've already in our worship and praise and in the prayer that we have made to you we have expressed our dependence upon you but Lord when we come to your word we do just want to confess once again Lord we need your presence because Lord in many ways we've all heard this truth many times it needs your Holy Spirit to speak it into our hearts Amen. and challenge us in the deepest part of our being. And, O oh Lord, we pray together that you will deliver this time from anything in the atmosphere or anything in our situation or condition that could frustrate your purpose. We commit ourselves to you, O oh Lord, and take once more by faith that anointing grace and power for both speaking and for hearing. Fulfill your purpose in this time, Lord. Draw near to every one of us. And Lord, may we remember these few days together here in this place. May, they, may it leave an indelible impression and mark upon our lives and upon our service. <coughs> oh Lord, hear us. We ask it together in that glorious and 
marvelous name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I have um, spoken uh, in these times um, uh, concerning essential characteristics, essential and fundamental characteristics of service. Um, we have only had three sessions, and therefore we've had to confine ourselves to three uh, essential uh, characteristics. But I wonder whether that may not be good. Very often when we have more time available and we can uh, uh, speak about some other characteristics, we can lose really what is priority. And therefore, because we have not had so much time, we have confined ourselves to three uh, essential characteristics, as, <clears throat> at least as the Lord has spoken in my heart and revealed uh, something um, of the nature of this matter to me. And uh, the first characteristic was the question of being a living sacrifice. We, we cannot get around it, we cannot bypass it. It is impossible to ignore this matter if we're going to serve the Lord. All real service flows out of being a living sacrifice. Otherwise, we can start with the highest ideals and the greatest zeal and the greatest devotion, but because we have mixed motives and because we never become aware of some of the determining factors and influences in our services, those very things become the weakness upon which the enemy works in the end to undo us and to destroy our service. The only key to real service is to be a living sacrifice. No one can follow the Lord very far before he discovers in his path the cross. And either you turn back or you go out of the way or you go on with the Lord. And in this matter we have spoken quite a bit about a living sacrifice. This morning I spoke about another essential characteristic. And that uh, characteristic is a hearing ear. A hearing ear to hear the Lord. There are very, very few Christians who hear the Lord. And yet Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Every one of us has the spiritual apparatus, the spiritual capacity, the spiritual ability within our spirit to hear the Lord. And it is very, very important that we should be able to uh, hear what he is saying. And so we spent this morning talking about this matter of hearing the Lord. How interesting it is that each of those messages to the seven churches ends with the refrain, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So important to hear what the Lord is saying. Elijah learnt this tremendous lesson. His was a tremendous ministry, lived in the presence of the Lord. 
He was always speaking about the Lord before whom I stand. And the Lord was always telling him, go here, and then go there, or show yourself to so-and-so, or, or do this. Uh, Elijah was, uh, is the symbol of service in the Old Testament, along with Moses. He and Moses are the summing up of all true and genuine service under the Old Covenant, and indeed in many senses in the whole Bible. But uh, Elijah's greatest lesson was at the end of his ministry, when after that terrific confrontation with the powers of darkness on Mount Carmel, in which God consumed the offering with fire from heaven and the priests of Baal were uh, destroyed. One word from a very feminine lady, Jezebel, and the great servant of God flies for his life. And you remember we talked about it this morning. God caught him at the end going as far as he could in the wrong direction, God was at the other end to catch him. And uh, you will remember uh, what we talked about this morning. There was the great wind that split the rocks. The Lord produced the wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then there was a great earthquake which just simply shook everything, turned everything upside down. The Lord produced the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a great fire which like roared, as it were, up the mountainside. And the Lord produced the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And Elijah remained erect through all of this. He, he enjoyed every moment of, after all, his whole ministry was wind and earthquake and fire. He was used to that powerful gale-like force. Ahab thought of, uh, of, uh, uh, a, uh, of uh, Elijah as a, as a gale-like force sweeping in, as it were, splitting everything, uh, tearing everything down, flattening everything. Uh, he thought of it as an earthquake, turning the whole of stable society in his eyes upside down. He thought of him as fire. But it was only when God spoke to Abraham, in a still, uh, to Elijah, in a still, small voice, that Elijah was broken. And then the lesson came home to him. He had never listened to the Lord. In that moment of panic when Jezebel confronted him, he had not listened to the Lord. He had just done the natural, spontaneous thing and panicked. It's a tremendous lesson to learn. You know, you can have a... a uh, 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 a ministry which I imagine every single one who's a leader here, everyone who's a servant of the Lord, would love to have a, 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 a ministry exemplified by gale force wind, by earthquake <coughs> power, and by fire. But that's not what God wants. God will use all that. But what God wants is a hearing ear. The rest doesn't mean too much if there's not a hearing here. Now I want this evening to speak about a third essential and fundamental characteristic of service. 
And it's one that I fear almost to talk about because it is so simple. In fact, all these ones we've talked about have all been so simple. So uh, kindergarten, really, Sunday school. Uh, and uh, that's why I felt the need to pray before every time that the Lord will, uh, will bring home. It's so easy to, oh, we've heard all this. And have a little snooze. Um, but the fact of the matter is that these very simple truths are the vital ones. And we can, in, in the guise of going on with the Lord into the depths, we can uh, ignore, in reality, those very simple truths that are absolutely essential. Now, this matter of love is absolutely essential. It is very interesting in Mark's Gospel. In Mark uh, chapter 12, almost the last words that Jesus ever spoke before he uh, um, preached that tremendous message of denunciation, the last positive words he ever spoke, uh, closing, as it were, his spoken ministry, his spoken public ministry, his messianic ministry, were in answer to a good scribe who came to him and said, verse 28 of Mark 12, and one of the scribes came and heard them questioning together, and knowing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. The second is this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Now, for those of us who are Jewish, it is very interesting because um, uh, Mark is the only synoptist who um, gives the full account of the answer of Jesus. For when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He simply answered by reciting the creed. It is called in Jewish circles the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And then he added this other, and the second is like to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Matthew adds an interesting little point. He says, Jesus said, upon these two hang the whole law and prophets. As if the Lord Jesus was closing his ministry, going back to the roots. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all 
thy mind and with all thy strength and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I wonder whether most of us it has sunk in. This whole question of burnout. We've been talking about burnout. My dear friends, there's no answer to burnout, really. We can, we can divest ourselves of uncommanded works. We can delegate responsibility. But uh, in the end, we could still burn, be burnout. There is no real answer to the drudgery of service unless we love the Lord. It's as simple as that. If any of you expect to have a different experience to all the rest of us, you're going to be disillusioned. Most people who are not in leadership or don't have responsibility of one kind or another in the world long to have such responsibility or such position. But once you've got there, you haven't to be there very long before you suddenly discover that it is quite irksome. It is a drudgery. It has a routine. It is a matter of responsibilities to be discharged, duties to be fulfilled. There is, in fact, only one answer to the whole thing, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I see no other answer. This is the only way that all the drudgery of the routine is gilded. <clears throat> it's rather like saying to a person who's running a home, one person finds it a drudgery and another person finds it fulfillment. What is the difference? One person loves her husband and her children and the other has fallen out of love with her husband and children. It's as simple as that. The thing's just a drudgery. The same chores, the same duties, the same responsibilities. One person is in love and one person is out of love. The person in love has all the routine things to do like the other person, but somehow or other finds fulfillment in it and joy in it because the dynamic of the whole thing is love. It is a love that draws a person to be a sacrifice. The love that draws a person to hear what is really said. There's no way of getting around this matter of love. It is not sentimental to end this time together on this matter. It is strategically important. How interesting it is when we come to John's Gospel, which is not a synoptic gospel. In other, words, in other words, it is not a history. It is an interpretation. When John wrote his Gospel, he wrote it from the very beginning, not as a history, not in chronological order, but as an interpretation. You know he takes the claims of Jesus eight times. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. And then around it he groups signs. 
miracles. He doesn't call them miracles, as in the other Gospels, or even wonders. He calls them signs, because they signify something. They reveal the nature of the Lord Jesus. They reveal the, the tremendous work of the Messiah. And when he comes to the end of his gospel, he ends it in a most remarkable way. Instead of giving us the great commission that the others do, Jesus saying, all power, authority and power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end. He doesn't end like that. He tells us a story. The story is a, a real story. It's not a parable. And the story is all to do with Peter. And that's how he ends his gospel. Peter had done, as always, what he'd been told not to do. <laughs> Jesus had told them that they were to remain in Jerusalem. Peter remained in Jerusalem for a while, got fed up with it and said to the others, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and the other said, we'll go with. And so he went in the wrong direction just as Elijah went in the wrong direction only to find the Lord was at the other end. No rebuke. In fact, the wonderful thing about the Lord was he cooked their breakfast just like the angels cooked Elijah's breakfast going in the wrong direction and as the Lord broke the bread with the disciples and Emmaus going in the wrong direction. Isn't the Lord wonderful? <laughs> when we go in the wrong direction, it's not like so many Christians who you know, beat you black and blue, tell you why you're wrong and how you should be right and where you should be going. Our Lord sometimes cooks us a meal and helps us <coughs> in the wrong direction. Because he knows he's going to get us in the end. <laughs> and here he cooks them a breakfast. And when they come to him, and they eat, after they've eaten, it's just like the Lord. Give you a good meal first before he comes to the point. <laughs> then he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all these? Now he could have meant more than all these other disciples. Or he could have meant more than all these other things. It's just left. Do you love me more than all? And Peter couldn't use, Jesus used the word for a complete full love. You don't get it in your English version. And when Peter answered, he said, Lord, you know I have an affection for you. The Lord ignored it and said, feed my lambs. And then he said again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Uh, you know I have an affection for you. And Jesus said to him, Tend 
my sheep. And then Jesus said for the third time, only this time with a difference, just like our Lord. He came down to Peter's level. Simon, son of John, do you have an affection for me? And that irritated Peter. Lord, he said, you know everything. You know I've got an affection for you. Feed my sheep. And that's how the gospel ends. This most magnificent of the gospels. This gospel that takes us to the very heart of God. That's how it ends. It's almost an anticlimax, I imagine, in some people's eyes. Why in the world don't we see Jesus in all his glory and power absolutely filling the universe as God the Son? But no, that's not how John's Gospel ends. This tremendous revelation of the person of the Lord Jesus, this tremendous interpretation of Jesus as God himself, manifest in the flesh. It ends with this amazing incident. <coughs> Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all? Lord, you know I have an affection for you. Tend my lambs. In other words, it was the commission. It was the commission that we have in Matthew and the commission we have in Mark and the commission that we have in Luke. Only this again is an interpretation as if the Lord Jesus was saying I don't want you going to the ends of the earth and giving your body to be burned as a martyr or bestowing all your goods to feed the poor or knowing all knowledge and all mysteries I want your heart if it isn't out of love for me first love it means nothing How easily the Lord could have said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love this flock more than anything else? And then he could have said, well, feed them. But Jesus didn't say that. It's not love for the flock that is to be the basis of our service. It is love for him. <coughs> if you only have love for the flock, I'll guarantee one thing. You'll fall out of love very rapidly. <laughs> sheep are sheep. And you won't stay in love with them for very long, believe you me. And the Lord knew that. There's only one way that we shall ever fulfill the ministry that is given to us, run the race and finish the course, and that is if we remain in the love of God. There is no other way. That is the key to all service. And I hope that although this is kindergarten in many ways, it will burn into your hearts this evening and you will never forget it. You may hear a million other messages, 
But I hope you'll never forget this simple little message that the heart and the key of all true service is love for God. If you do not remain in love with the Lord Jesus, it'll become a drudgery, and you'll spend your whole time trying to get out of it. You'll think of every exit possible, every excuse possible, somehow to backtrack, get out of the predicament you've got yourself into. In jumping too quickly into serving the Lord. Sheep and lambs, that's the whole flock. It's interesting how the Lord put it, isn't it? Lambs and sheep, it covers the whole flock. Babies and adults. The Lord never said about the condition of them, I take it some were nice-tempered and some were bad-tempered. Some were difficult and some were not so difficult. They're all in the flock. He divided them only by lambs and sheep. And then this, these two words, feed and tend. Now, my dear friend, it, friends, it's easier to feed the flock than tend it. Uh, feeding the flock is not too bad a job. In the part of the world that I come from, um, you can often see the shepherds leading out their flocks to the mountainside, into the wadis. It's a reasonably pleasant occupation. It requires a bit of foresight. The flocks uh, south of me in the Bethlehem area move up to the north of Jerusalem to Ramallah. And twice a year they go through the very area where I live, which is an awful nuisance as far as we're concerned. Because the sheep and the goats leave a whole lot of ticks which the dog picks up when she goes out. And so we always are annoyed every spring and every fall when the, uh, the flocks go through. Of course, why they do it now when the area is built up, I don't know, but they've been doing it for thousands of years and they don't feel like changing the, pack, the track. <laughs> so now it happens to be National Park, but it doesn't stop the shepherds who for thousands of years have driven their, led their, their flocks right through the park. They go up to the Ramallah area for the summer and they're in the Bethlehem area for the winter. It's a reasonably pleasant occupation finding food. It's the tending of the sheep that is the difficult thing. I told you, I think, I, uh, this morning or whenever, about sheep, that uh, one of the things I learned from some of the shepherds was that sheep have to be inspected regularly. You can't leave them more than, than 48 hours. They develop foot rot almost over, overnight. So they have to be inspected almost daily. Now, goats are interesting. You can leave them almost up to two weeks because they're basically disease-free. But sheep have to be inspected the whole time. That's what the Lord meant when he said, tend. You've got to watch. So there are a whole lot of things in this tending and feeding the lambs and the, and the sheep. There is health and well-being. 
There is protection and security. There is correction. And there is food. And the food side requires a bit of foresight. The shepherd has to know where the grass and pasture has been good. And where it hasn't, uh, it's not too sparse that year. He has to think where there's plenty of water, or at least enough water, to water the flocks. Where there are wells, and how long the wells will not dry up. There's a very localized business springs. In some places, they will last for a month or two. In other places, they will last longer. But some years, some wells will dry up more quickly than others. So it is not just a question of going on a little track. He's got to have a little bit of foresight, a little bit of thought. The shepherd's job is not just some empty-headed job. Lambs and sheep, feeding and tending. And the amazing thing, who would have ever related love to that job? Lovest thou me more than all these? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. How interesting it is when you come to the letter to the Corinthians. What a marvellous letter it is. And how when we come to chapter 11, the apostle starts to take up the whole question of the church, the body of the Lord Jesus, its functions, its gifts, the various uh, contributions that have to be made for its well-being. He goes through it all. But how interesting it is that right in the middle of it all, we have this amazing poem on love. Now, we could be forgiven if we didn't know the Lord for wondering if somehow or other this got misplaced. What in the world is this all doing here in the middle of all this talk about the body of Christ, about all the members of the body being many, being many are only one body in Christ, and about, you know, the hand not being able to say uh, to the uh, eye, um, I have no need of you, or the ear being able to say to the foot, I have no need of you. I mean, what has this all got to do with this amazing matter of love? But right in the heart of it all, the Apostle says, desire earnestly the greater gift, but a most excellent way I will show you. And he ends it with these words, as it is in Philip's translation, make love your aim. Listen to it. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I can speak in tongues, but if there's no love there, then it's just empty. Or listen to this. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
I imagine most servants of the Lord would give anything to have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. What a fund for sermons. What a marvelous storeroom to draw on when you preach. To have all, uh, uh, to know all mysteries and all knowledge and have the gift of prophecy. And imagine having all faith so as to remove mountains. There are many, many spiritual obstacles confronting assemblies and fellowships represented in this little time together. Can you imagine what it would mean if we had all faith so as to remove those obstacles? But listen to what the word says. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the church, the mystery of Israel, and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Let it sink in. Nothing. That means I can have such a knowledge of mysteries that I could dazzle you with my understanding of the things of God and the depths of God. I could have such faith that I could do signs and wonders one after the other that would cause you to stand in awe. But if it's not done out of love for Him, then God says, it's worth nothing. I imagine that most of us subconsciously think that if we could do all these things, at least we'll get some commendation when finally we get there. And the Lord says, well, look here, you were rather poor on this and this and this, but I must say you did have the gift of prophecy and you did use it. And you did have uh, an understanding of those mysteries and of knowledge and you did use it and you did have faith and you did remove mountains. I think that's commendable. But if I understand the word of God, what it says is this, the Lord would say, you had all that faith and you removed mountains and you had all that knowledge of mysteries and of these other things. You had that gift of prophecy. You had the gift of tongues, but you did not have love. It means absolutely nothing. You might as well not have done it. It is worthless. Then, my dear friends, the drudgery of our routine service is nonsensical. We might as well get out of it right now and start to enjoy ourselves. The trouble is, if we are believers, we can't get out of it. This is the problem. <laughs> to be absent, I know most preachers would never say this, but I mean, it's the problem, isn't it? You see, we have an enemy. We're marked people. I, I mean, we could sort of say, oh, I, I think I'll just get out of this. This is ridiculous. I mean, I don't feel I really love the Lord as I ought to. The whole thing's a drudgery. I, let's get out and enjoy ourselves. I'll tell you one thing. You'll be out tonight, and for the next six months, you'll have a, a whale of a time. And then the enemy will get you. Step by step, stage by stage, he will destroy you. This is the problem of being a believer. Once God has caught you, there's no escape. You might as well go on. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
It's, uh, it's an amazing thing about that. I always say to people, it is both at one and the same time the most wonderful thing in the world to be loved by God and the most horrific thing. One thing is it is so wonderful that God loves me, but it is an awesome thing that he loves me because he will not be frustrated. He will wait and even if it's on my deathbed, he's going to get me. So he might as well get me now. If he's got a love like that, what's the point of holding out until our deathbed? It's better to give in right now and say, Lord, I'll go along with you the whole way. But you see, the, the whole problem is just very simply this. What is the point of this drudgery, of, of all these duties and responsibilities, this possibility of burnout? If we get out of it, we shall be happy for a little while, only to find ourselves destroyed at the end by the one who hates the Lord Jesus and hates the very mark of the Lord Jesus in us, even when we've fallen away. So full of hatred is the enemy for anyone who's marked with the name of the Lord Jesus that even when that one gives himself over, as it were, to the other side, Satan will still, just, still destroy him. And we're caught. And now this is our predicament <laughs> as servants of the Lord. I can have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I can have all faith so as to remove mountains, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. <coughs> now what are we going to do? And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, now you'd have thought that would have got a commendation from the Lord, wouldn't you? I mean, think of it if we just went home and said, I'll, I'll sell the lot. I'll sell the lot. And if I give my body to be burned, can you believe it? Do you realize what, is, what, is, what the inspired word is saying? If I give my body to be burned, most of us would say, oh, how amazing. He was a martyr. And the Lord says, it's worthless. Worthless. Do you know there are some people who are so given to an ideal that they could become martyrs? But it's not out of love for the Lord. They're the kind, you know, that grit their teeth and sort of say, well, it's a challenge. I'm going through whatever happens to this. <laughs> and the more you challenge them, the more they're going to go through. They're not going to give up. Nothing to do with loving the Lord. It's a question that someone's challenged me on this thing. <laughs> it's that type of thing. Oh, yes, there are people, there are plenty of Iranian martyrs. All through history there have been people who have given their bodies to be burned and others who have bestowed all their goods. It's not that it's wrong, but I want you to get the message. And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and if I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, 
taketh not account of evil, rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, unrighteousness, but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails. Now, my dear friends, we talk about the burnout. We talk about the weariness of leadership responsibilities. We talk about the sort of drudgery of service. This kind of love is the only thing that transforms it. Then this love makes it a privilege. It makes it a privilege to serve the Lord. It's not a question that you're thinking of your goods that you're bestowing on the poor or your body that will be burned or the exercise of prophecy. It's a spontaneous exercise of love. Love never fails. And where does this amazing revelation come? Right in the midst of one of the supreme passages on the functioning of the body of the Lord Jesus on this earth just to preserve us from getting all technical, all too sound and correct and right and perfect in performance. It comes right there. The key is love. Desire earnestly the greater gifts, but a most excellent way I show you. Make love your aim, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Dear people of God, <clears throat> I have to bring myself back to this thing as I think you have to come face to face with it again and again. There is no other way through. Take this whole question of the, uh, of the Lord's message to the first church in Revelation and, uh, and chapter uh, uh, 2. You know where the Lord Jesus says um, all these marvelous things. I know thy works and thy toil and endurance I think that's pretty good. <laughs> I know many churches where there's none of these things. <laughs> I know thy works and thy toil and endurance and that thou canst not bear evil men and didst try them that call themselves apostles and are not and didst find them false and thou hast endurance and didst bear for my name's sake and hast not grown weary. Now, that's not a burnout. They haven't yet got there. They haven't even grown weary. But the interesting thing is this, the Lord says, I have this against you. That you did, you left your first love. 
remember them from whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works or else I come to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. This church has so much to commend it. Works, toil, endurance, it hasn't grown weary, it's sorted out the precious from the vile, it's rejected the false and the erroneous and held to the true and the genuine. But the Lord says, I have this against you. You've fallen from your first love. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come and remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, I, I, I wonder whether many of us feel this is unnecessarily harsh. To rebuke them, but to warn them that the lampstand could be removed out of its place simply because they've left their first love. Now, first love is not a question of time. In other words, you have first love, and then you have another kind of love, and then you have another kind of love, and then you have finished love or maturing love or whatever. I mean, first love is a quality of love. You know, when people uh, have first love, when they really fall in love, there's all kinds of things happen. They do the most ridiculous things they wouldn't dream of doing. I mean, some men wouldn't go round a shop, not in a thousand years, but when they fall in love, lo and behold, they're trailing round shops with their beloved. <laughs> it is true it will only be for a month or two, but nevertheless, in that first love, they are doing things they would never dream of doing normally. When people are in first love, they sometimes don't even think about eating. Their appetite completely disappears. It is amazing. It's first love. It doesn't necessarily continue, thank God, or they die. But I mean, the fact is that that is the effect on them. There are a thousand and other things that, uh, one thing that happen when people are in love. It's first love. When people have first love, nothing is too great a trouble. A person will travel 40, 50 miles to meet their beloved. Or they will travel over half the globe to do something for them. Nothing is too much trouble. Nothing is a drudgery. Nothing is a duty. Nothing is a responsibility. Who talks about responsibilities or duties when you're in love? I mean, there's no such thing. And as for drudgery, you think, you'd never think of such a thing. Drudgery, you wouldn't think of such a thing. First love. It's only when the first love has gone that we start to talk about duties, responsibilities, chores, the routine, the difficulties, the problem, the obstacles. The catalogue is endless once we've got out of first love. It is interesting, isn't it? Because we're all caught. 
We've spent this whole weekend talking about duties and responsibilities and chores and the drudgery of the routine of service and the possibilities of burnout and all the other things one after the it's endless to get along. We have we have to confess it. Something's happened to our first love. Is it not an interesting thing that when the Bible ends, it ends with a marriage? And is it not interesting that it ends with a bride? And before the Lord speaks of the city, he speaks of the bride. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, I want people to come to the place where they can rule with me, where they can reign with me, where they can govern with me, where they can know my heart and know my mind and administer my will according to my heart and mind. But I don't want people who can just do all this out of knowledge. <coughs> I want people who are in love with me. The bride is there because she chose to be there. It is an amazing paradox. She's really there because the Lord chose her. But you see, she is there also because she chose to be there. Having been chosen by him, she then said, I choose to be with you. I will follow you where, whithersoever you go. I will put my steps in your steps. Where you go, I will go. Where you lie down, I will lie down. Your people will be my people. Love. It is extraordinary to me that the Bible ends on this note. So that the whole of eternity opens up with all its glorious possibilities and potentialities. And we're not told anything about it at all, only that the Lamb goes out with his wife into that eternity. What they will do, we don't know. All I can say is it's going to be marvelous. And I'll tell you why I believe it's going to be so marvelous. Because the Lord has gone to such extraordinary lengths to get that right. I cannot believe that he could have endured 6,000 years at least of misery, of disorder, of sin, of wickedness, of iniquity. That he could have sent his only son into the world to die on the cross, to obtain such a people for himself. And then all we're going to do is play harps forever and ever and ever and ever. I cannot believe it. I mean, some of these hymns, I know we have to sing them, and I sing them myself with some joy, but all this walking up and down the golden streets and tramping in and out of the pearly gates. I mean, after all, after a while, it's going to be so boring. And then that eternal hallelujah chorus strumming our hearts forever and ever. Now I know that music is very satisfying and very beautiful. But I mean endless, endless 
<laughs> I can't believe that the Lord has gone to all this trouble. No, and we get glimpses that it is not just for that. He says, I make all things new. Now, if this world in its fallen state is so, um, so marvelous, so wonderful, so incredibly beautiful, what is it going to be like when it all becomes new? It, it, is, it, it blows your mind, the thought of it. And at the heart of this whole new heaven and new earth is a city, a bride. Not just someone who's been redeemed, but is totally empty-headed. Some pretty little doll that can sit next to the king of the universe and look sweet. <laughs> As if the Lord would be interested in such a bride. Some kind of puppet. My dear friends, he could have, <laughs> he could have finished with Adam and Eve in the beginning and created such a puppet right at the start. If he'd really wanted such an empty-headed little <laughs> Hollywood doll, you know, to sit beside and then look all beautiful, and then, oh, isn't she lovely? But the poor thing can't say two words. All she can do is smile sweetly. She's a proper little empty-headed doll, I mean, that's all. But that's the idea one gets from certain Christian writings and so on, that's all the church is meant to be. She's a channel only. <laughs> Reduced of all originality, devalued of every single thing that could be said to be hers. She is a channel only. He's going to do everything while she just sits there draping uh, the throne as a trophy of grace. Some trophy. <laughs> Goodness gracious me, no wonder the agnostics and atheists hold the whole gospel up to ridicule when they hear that kind of thing as if that's the gospel. It is nonsensical. If he'd wanted that kind of empty-headed, dumb uh, uh, bell, he could have... <laughs> He could, have, he could have created that kind of creature at the very beginning. But instead, he has endured at least 6,000 years of human history, of all its ups and downs, of all its wickednesses, sent the Lord Jesus into the world, who gave himself for our sin. And when he died, they pierced his side. And out of his side came blood and water. And John says there are three that bear witness. The spirit, the water, and the blood. That is the bride. Created by the spirit. Out of the water and blood that flowed from the side of Jesus. Dear friends... <coughs> I, I believe that at the heart of this new heaven and new earth, there will be millions and millions of saved ones who've never grown anywhere. They will enjoy it, and God will enjoy them. But at the heart of that whole family, there will be a bride. She, 
is made up of those who have walked with the Lamb the whole way. She chose to be there because he chose her. She said, I want to be there with you. Just because it's you, I want to be there. And I want to serve you. And I'm never going to talk about drudgery. And I'm never going to talk about duties. And I'm never going to talk about responsibilities. And I'm never going to talk about chores. Even though I may be filled with the whole thing, I want to be so in love with you that it will be a privilege to do all these things. From the humblest things to the most difficult and great things. I want to be with you. I cannot believe that anything less than that would satisfy the heart of the Lord. He wants a union and communion. That is, if you understand what I mean, between equal. I don't want to take away from the glory of the Lord Jesus. But what I want to, to get over to you is that God wants to produce a bride that's made up out of his own nature, out of his own life, with his own character, able to commune with him, able to understand him, able somehow to sense his will, and able to administer it with him. I don't know what we shall do in eternity of eternity. I know some of the prophets talk about strange things. They talk about trees clapping their hands and hills singing for joy. And some people think that's only poetry, but I wonder whether there's a bit more in it than that. But the Apostle Paul says, the whole of the natural creation groaneth in travail together until now, waiting for its placing or adoption, its recognition, the recognition of the sons. Now, my dear friends, what on earth does it mean? Does it mean that somehow one day when this whole natural creation is no longer subjected to the cycle of futility and corruption, it will evolve into something else? I don't know. <laughs> sufficient for me that it would be wonderful to be with the Lord to see it all and be involved in the production of it all to be involved in if, if you like in a right way the evolution of it all to see the whole thing from the heart service therefore is a preparation Leadership is a preparation. It doesn't mean because you're a leader here, you're going to be a leader there. Although, generally speaking, if the Lord really is going to train you in those qualities, he wants you to be that there. And so this whole matter finally comes down to this. Do you love me? Do you love me more than all? Feed my lambs. Do you love me?
tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Dear friends, we can't get away from it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord, is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself.